Sex development disorders occur more frequently than most people realize. An estimated 1 in 4,500 children has such a condition. Many times, these differences are found at birth, and even some aren't found until later in a child's life, even though the condition was present since early in development. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi, and joining me today is Dr. Earl Chang. He's the division head of urology and co-head of reconstructive pediatric urology at Lurie Children's Hospital. He is also the director of the Sex Development Program at Lurie Children's Hospital. Dr. Chang, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's truly my pleasure to be here. Dr. Chang, can you briefly discuss sex development disorder? How and when does it occur? Sure. So when a child is in utero or during the embryologic development of the child, um, in general, uh, there are certain pathways that result in either the child becoming a boy or a girl. And there can be abnormalities anywhere along that pathway of development such that there can be ambiguity in what the child has when they're actually born. And that can involve an abnormality of the chromosomes. It can involve an abnormality of the hormonal milieu in utero. But the bottom line is that when the child is born, uh, they have genitalia that would be categorized as ambiguous. Um, and obviously there's difficult in, in determining gender at that time as to whether or not the child is a boy or a girl. And uh, when that situation exists, then obviously um, further investigation is necessary to better determine the next best course of action. So, Dr. Chang, specifically your area of expertise are patients born with ambiguous genitalia, correct? That is correct. Not, certainly not all children that are born with um, a DSD, uh, otherwise known as disorder of sex development, uh, one of the older terminologies uh, that has been utilized is intersex. But in children that are born with that, not all of them have ambiguous genitalia. Sometimes the abnormality is not necessarily discovered until later in life since they may not necessarily have something completely on the outside that is discordant with their chromosomal sex. But certainly the classic form of a child that is born with a disorder of sex development is one that is in which when they're born, their genitalia are ambiguous. As we may know, about 50 years ago, it was believed that sex reassignment surgery and secrecy were the best treatments for patients and children with sex development disorders. Can you discuss the current situation? Sure. Um, I think that's one of, that's been one of the major changes in philosophy uh, that has occurred in the last 50 years in individuals that take care of um, children or uh, individuals uh, with this disorders of sex development. And that is, it used to be felt uh, that if a child was born with ambiguous genitalia, that there was, in essence, a somewhat emergent decision necessary to either assign a sex, whether that be male or female, and then to perform surgery uh, to make the genitalia consistent with that decision-making process. And the basis behind that philosophy was that if one made the decision to assign boy or girl, regardless of what the basis was of that decision, as long as you provided an environment that was consistent with that, then the individual would generally do well and uh, align themselves with that uh, gender, whether it was chosen as male or female. What we have come to understand, though, through numerous experiences with patients over the past couple of decades, is that that is not necessarily true. Uh, and certainly there's no black and white answer, 
But the bottom line is that in many situations where children have had surgery to align themselves with a decision that was made either by parents or physicians or both, hopefully, years ago, that um, even though the environment was provided to raise them to be consistent with boy or, or girl or male or female, what happened later on is that the individual uh, did not necessarily recognize themselves as that gender. So despite having genitalia that would be consistent with a chosen gender and the environment to support that, if their situation was one in which they declared later that within uh, their own mindset that they, uh, they did not recognize themselves as such, then you had a situation in which uh, the environment and the surgical reconstruction of the genitalia did not match how that person perceived themselves as their own gender. So I think what we're learning is that um, that original philosophy uh, of surgical reconstruction at an early age and providing the correct environment is going to always give rise to a, an acceptable result is not necessarily true. So I think our newer mindset is to uh, not necessarily make a decision in haste as a newborn, uh, but to get all the information that one can uh, to better understand what the situation that the child has and then hopefully educate the family as to what the situation is and what the uh, natural history of that condition is. And we don't always know what the natural history is. And then allow the family, obviously, to have a role in that decision-making process as to whether or not surgery should play any sort of role early on in the uh, management of the individual. And there are certainly uh, new thought processes to suggest that maybe the best thing that we should do is, if it's possible, uh, to not necessarily perform early surgery, but even have the child be involved in the decision-making process later in life, such that um, surgical intervention, I think, needs to be done, certainly not in secrecy, uh, but also with better education, with involvement of the parents, and in a perfect situation, involvement of the individual when they're old enough to be involved in that decision-making process. Can you discuss some of the current protocols that you use to treat these individuals? Well, I don't think there's necessarily accepted protocols nationwide or across the world for treatments of specific conditions. I think one of the things that we've learned to do is to individualize um, treatment uh, plans uh, for what the best needs of the child are as well as their family, and that can differ significantly from case to case. If you look at uh, the most common form of disorders of sex development, which would be congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which... Uh, in many cases may make up half of the patients that one sees in a multidisciplinary clinic that takes care of these types of patients. The management of them is fairly straightforward. Uh, early on, you'll, you'll manage the hormonal imbalance that exists, and then it's a matter of having a decision-making process with the family um, as to the appropriateness of reconstructive surgery uh, to uh, make the female child that has this condition that usually has uh, a genitalia that is more along the lines of a male to make them more in line with a female uh, phenotype. And really the controversy exists as to the timing of surgery and the overall appropriateness of surgery. Um, on the other hand, um, if you have a situation in which there is a fair amount of ambiguity as to what the actual condition is, and the natural history is not readily known with that condition, then there may not necessarily be a specific protocol. 
I think it's more of a specific philosophy, and that's an openness with the family and certainly not one of secrecy in which you indicate to them what you know and be willing to say what you don't know and then discuss with them what the options are from the standpoint of surgical management either now or later, and then having the psychological support available with use of a child psychologist that is involved with caring for the family, including the the child uh, if they're older um, uh, or obviously if they're an infant, uh, then supporting the parents through that process of that decision-making process as they go forward. If you are just tuning in, I am your host, Dr. Prathima Seti, and I have with us today Dr. Earl Chang. He's the director of the Sex Development Program at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Chang, can you discuss a little bit about what services you offer? The program at Lurie Children's, uh, which is um, in concert with Northwestern uh, here in Chicago, is we have a uh, program called the Gender uh, and Sex Development Program, it actually takes care of uh, two different populations of patients. The population of the patients that we're talking about are those individuals that have disorders of sex development. The other half of the uh, program, which we're not necessarily speaking to specifically, um, is individuals with gender dysphoria or gender nonconforming behavior. Those are individuals that are not born with ambiguous genitalia uh, and are chromosomally um, uh, normal from the standpoint of male or female chromosomes, but yet they uh, have non-conforming behavior uh, or they have dysphoric um, uh, behavior that is inconsistent uh, and discordant uh, with that. Uh, so once again, that is a different set of uh, patients that is uh, seen under the same clinic heading but in a different arm of our program. Uh, the arm of the program that we're discussing are those individuals that um, have disorders of sex development um, and um, we try to approach these um, patients and their families in a multidisciplinary fashion in which we have uh, endocrinologists, um, urologists, and pediatric surgeons. Uh, and probably the most important aspect of the program is the mental health support through uh, child psychologists, child psychiatrists, and then we also have geneticists and ethicists involved. And so uh, when a patient and their family first comes uh, to the clinic, um, uh, they generally will see many of the specialists, and uh, if there is a decision that needs to be made uh, during that setting, um, then they'll have all of the different inputs of the specialist to hopefully come up uh, with a uniform opinion at the end that can be presented to the family at that time. So are there any learning opportunities for clinicians who may be interested in in gaining some more information about these issues, and, and what are some of the common myths and misconceptions you see among your colleagues? I think. Um, it's an evolving thought process as it relates to individuals that have DSDs and the best way to treat them. I think there needs to be a willingness uh, to admit that we physicians don't necessarily have all the answers and that the way in which we treated individuals with DSDs or intersex conditions in the past was not the optimal way. And I think we have to have a willingness to better explore uh, the natural history of many of these conditions whereas the previous thought process was one in which we needed to completely align an individual with either a male or a sex uh, a gender, whereas what we're hearing from individuals that have gone through various processes or maybe none at all, that when they become adults, that they neither align with male or female and that they're comfortable with that. So 
uh, the societal sort of expectations that you be either male or female and that there's nothing in between maybe needs to be rethought. And I think there needs to be a willingness from the standpoint of the physicians that take care of these individuals to recognize that. And then I think we need to sort of rethink our philosophy um, as to how we treat newborns with ambiguous genitalia, once again, not necessarily uh, thinking that there needs to be an emergent decision as to choosing a gender, but making it a much more thoughtful process, as well as involving the input of numerous specialists and, most importantly, the family, because they're the ones that are going to have the ultimate decision in both choosing gender as well as whether or not any role of early surgery is going to be undertaken. So, Dr. Chang, how has your program served patients and their families? How, how are people feeling after going through your program? Um, I think the response has been one that is very favorable. Uh, and um, I think our willingness to be open and transparent with the families uh, that um, uh, we are going to work with them through a process that doesn't necessarily have immediate answers uh, as well as answers that aren't that are not easy, uh, because uh, a perfect solution to many of these uh, children's situations is not always readily available. So I think um, the fact that they recognize that there are people that are going to work with them and support them, uh, as well as the realization that uh, they're not alone in this process, uh, is something that can be very comforting to the families. So whereas uh, in the past. Uh, there has been a certain level of mistrust uh, in individuals that have been treated with DSD and their physicians because there has been a certain element of secrecy involved. The willingness to be open, I think, is, is one that goes a long ways to really change the culture, to heal some of the things that have occurred in the past uh, that may be influencing um, uh, parents or patients' thoughts as they come into the clinic. So when we sit down with families um, and patients, uh, we try to talk with them about the philosophy of the clinic, um, and we ask them what they need from us and what they're hoping to gain from their visit with us. And um, uh, usually that benefits in a, in a positive relationship that moves forward. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chang, for being with us today and discussing this very important topic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Seti, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio. If you've missed any part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast. Thank you for listening.